Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I'm speaking with Robert Pondicio. Robert is an author and an educator. He's got a book out called How the Other Half Learn, Equality, Excellence, and the Battle Over School Choice. And I recently read an article he did in, um, I believe it was the Federalist, uh, uh, sorry, the Fordham Institute. And it's called, I believe, Anti-Racism and Misguided, Can I Still Teach Black Children? Hi, Robert. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Um, so I want to like I read that article you'd written and I've been I've been kind of speaking out against this stuff first before I even knew kind of what it was. And then the more I started looking into it and I started seeing it getting into education, and I'm just like, okay. And when I say this stuff of like the, the anti-racism training, uh call it CR, you know, critical race theory if you want, because I know there's arguments about is it truly or not, but like the way they're teaching kids about power and power roles and who's oppressed and who's the oppressor. I mean, and that stuff really came to a head um, last year uh, after the killing of George Floyd. Now, mm-hmm. um, if you could talk a little bit about how you got into this space and then a, a bit about your sure. book and then we can go from there. Yeah, well, I'll just give you some some brief backstory of my educational career. Uh, I'm a, a second career uh, teacher and educator um, until I was about 40. Uh, I worked in the news business. I was in radio news and, and then I spent many years in the magazine business at, at Business Week and Time magazine. So I've, I've often joked somewhat, um, you know, uh, archly that teaching was my mid-career impulse purchase. In other words, there was, there was never a moment when I was a young person, I was not that kid you know, who at age seven was was playing school with his friends uh, or her friends. So it was kind of, you know, I envisioned going into teaching as kind of a two-year mid-career public service stint. And then it kind of unwittingly became uh, my second career because I became, um, how can I say this, somewhat uh, militant, I suppose, uh, about issues pertaining to education once I was exposed to, um, you know, what we were doing for kids uh, in in urban classrooms. I was a, I was a a fifth grade teacher at a low performing South Bronx public school for, for five years, and then got very interested in issues of curriculum, instruction, pedagogy, school culture, et cetera. Um, so I've, you know, ever since then, I've, I've been an intermittent teacher on and off. Uh, I was only in the classroom full-time for five years. Um, I'm not teaching at present, but I was teaching as recently as last year uh, at a charter school in, in New York City. So, you know, in other words, uh, long story short is I've kind of made my, my second career into um, uh, you know a, a career that's all or writing and uh, all about uh, and analyzing uh, the stuff that frankly we don't really talk about a lot in education policy, which is what happens in the classroom all day. What are students learning? What are teachers doing? What's the preparation we're giving kids, teachers, etc.? Uh, I've often observed that folks who kind of write about education for a living tend to treat the classroom as a bit of a black box and they're a little bit incurious about uh, what goes on inside. I'm just the opposite. I, I, I'm probably almost to a fault only curious about what happens inside. Uh, and I don't write about uh, you know, issues like you know, school funding and whatnot that other people seem much, much more interested in. Um, but that's, you know, that's, the back, that's the backdrop for both the book that I wrote, which is about Success Academy, a charter school network in New York City, and, and about the work that I do you know, week in and week out at the Fordham Institute, uh, which tends to be about educational practice as opposed to educational policy. Okay. Um, like some of the stuff you mentioned, like, like I know you mentioned policy and funding, but 
just have a question on that because sure. I mean, funding is based off of policy though, right? Like, I mean, if, Oh yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't, don't, don't mistake me. I'm not, I'm not pretending to be blithe about, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like uh, education policy, like, you know, uh, I'm a charter school guy. I'm a choice guy. These, these issues matter to me quite a lot. I, I'm not saying those things don't matter. I'm saying they, they get a lot of oxygen in, yeah. in, in the, in, in the media and in, in, in think tanks like the one that I work in. Uh, where um, classroom practice tends to be a, a bit of an underexplored um, uh, vein of ore. Yeah, I mean, okay, again, like I mentioned, I so you know, this is just me, some guys doing Google searches sure. and looking at stuff, and I'm looking at these things. And so, when you look at the stats of how poorly students are doing, you know, I think it's what sixty six percent can't do math. Um, yeah, or you know, like something some a similar number can't read at grade level and things like that and yep. i look at the curriculum that's coming out or i mean lately i mean you had it in virginia uh california just come out with it seattle had something similar with their maths curriculum where you know they want to get rid of track programs they want to you know you can only take ap courses in junior and senior year that kind of stuff so when you see that like, like when you're not teaching the kids to read, but you're teaching them how they're oppressed. Like, like I've spoken to a couple of teachers, and they said that that's you know coming from the colleges of education a bit. But yeah, is that impetus like from the academy, or is it more from the government? Yeah, I mean, there, boy, there is so much to to unwind in in that very good and essential question. Um, there is an assumption. Uh, and this is going to get really detailed and wonky, forgive me in advance, Um, but it gets to the heart of why I tend to focus on what happens in classrooms as opposed to policy. Look, you know, I I am not at all blithe about curriculum and instruction. It's, It's kind of, you know, what I live and breathe. But there's this idea that's at loose in the land um, that we have control over it as, as, as commentators, as policymakers, et cetera. So what you're just describing, for example, you, know, you, you cited the Virginia example and a few others. I, I just wrote an extensive piece um, for, for an upcoming issue of Commentary Magazine about uh, California's ethnic studies curriculum. Uh, and, and a lot of the controversy, while earnest and serious and important, is predicated on a flawed understanding. There's this idea that, well, once, once you, as an activist, as an advocate, once you, you know, get some say over what's in, quote, the curriculum, and I'm making air quotes uh, that our listeners cannot see around the curriculum, well, you think you've accomplished something. You think you are now, um, you have determined what gets taught, what, what does not get taught. Well, that's just not the way any of this works. Um, there was a study uh, done by the, uh, by the land... Um, corporation some years ago that showed that, and this is from memory, so don't, don't um, yell at me if I've got this exactly wrong, uh, but some extraordinary number, like 98% of teachers, uh, both primary and secondary, rely primarily on, on materials that they either c- uh, create, find, or adapt in, in teaching. So in other words, curriculum almost never gets taught as, as written. Um, so you have to go to the next layer of the onion especially when you're talking about things like critical race theory, like anti-racism or whatnot, you, it, it really becomes a function of what are, what is the teacher choosing uh, to, to put in front of his or her students? They have an extraordinary amount of control, uh, which people don't, don't realize. 
Um, and and what, are, what are the beliefs that they bring to bear, you know, in any of the, you know, the countless classroom interactions that happen on a given day? So in other words, you really have to look at this not as an issue of, you know, this curriculum good, this curriculum bad, but what are the attitudes, values, belief sets that, that teachers have? And, and you're absolutely right. This gets back in many instances to, to schools of education, which do overtly encourage in many instances and, and expect school, uh, teachers to demonstrate a so-called disposition towards social justice. Now that sounds bland and anodyne and, and um, you know, nobody is in theory against that. But the question is how it manifests itself. Uh, so it, 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 it becomes, I, I don't mean to say, to, to, to sound defeatist about this, but it's just, it's really, really hard, um, maybe even impossible to know on any given day uh, what uh, material ideas, values kids are being um, exposed to in, in a given classroom, in a, in a given school, anywhere. You know, everybody who's been to school, I think, has the common understanding that, um, you know, there, there are certain expectations or certain things you can say and cannot say, but, but that's, that's simply not um, a function of, of, quote, the curriculum. Okay. Like I said, I'm just, you know, again, I'm probably going to make a lot of mistakes on this stuff because, you know, I'm just from the outside looking in, but now when you said teachers have choice, and I mean, I get that, like, you know, going back to, yeah. I was in high school in the eighties, so it's a while ago, but you know, my English class might've read Lord of the Flies and then my friend's English class could have read um, the crucible, like yeah, whatever, like, yeah. you know, so I understand that, but now, yeah, but it depends on like, you know, who's doing what, but now is it big, like, is it easier in a public, like in a district public school to stray from, they give you five recommended books, but the teacher says, you know what? I don't like these. I'm going to get my kids to yeah. read Huck Finn. Now, is it easier yep. in a public district school or is it easier in a charter school? <laughs> here, here I go again. The answer is, I'm, I'm afraid, it depends. Okay. Um, I mean, there, there, there is kind of an interesting, and sorry, I, 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 will, I will get around to that question, but this is just, just another layer of complexity. So I, I've, I've painted a picture so far, because I think it's an accurate picture, of a, of a thing called teaching, a profession, that its practitioners um, are are acculturated into the idea that um, they are not just expected, but required to um, uh, figure out what's best for each kid, uh, to, to tailor the curriculum for the interest and engagement of individual students. Uh, you know, that, that, that is considered a good practice and it's complicated. Let's put that aside. We can talk about that more because I'm not sure it is a, a best practice, not because I want to control, you know, what, what kids learn, uh, but because I think it just makes the act of teaching more difficult. Um, okay, but, but so you, you're already starting with a basic expectation, you know, again, as best practice that, that teachers are going to customize everything every day, you know. Um, so, so you've got that. Uh, so the idea that any district has a curriculum, is, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Uh, I mean, the school where I taught in the South Bronx, we, we, we simply did not have a, a, a curriculum. It was 24 kids reading 24 books, so to speak. And then I was supposed to you know, teach each one. It was kind of crazy. Um, but there is, interestingly enough, 
if you look at this from a, uh, the, the, the standpoint of the law, it's a very different matter. There have been any number of, of um, Supreme Court and federal court decisions in the US that have basically held that, look, teachers do not have free speech, that they are, quote, hired speech, and that they are expected to, to teach the curriculum. <clears throat> and and uh, that, that decision is made by school boards, 13,000 of them across, across the country. So there's this kind of enormous gray area and almost a conspiracy of silence where best practice says everything has got to be bespoke. But the law says, sorry, teacher, you don't have that power. And, and this almost never gets contested, except, you know, in cases every now and then there was one in Indiana, for example, where a teacher was fired for, a, again, for memory, don't, don't yell at me if I'm remembering this incorrectly, where a teacher was fired for expressing a negative opinion about um, the, 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 the war in Afghanistan or maybe the Gulf War in a military community. You know, so that was viewed as not protected speech, for example. Um, and, and then again, you've got any number of teachers who with a, this social justice orientation think that they are doing a service to kids, particularly kids of color, by doing what they call disrupt texts. In other words, they're not gonna teach the Lord of the Flies or, or um, the Crucible. They're, they're gonna teach the House on Mango Street. They're gonna teach Maya Angelou. And there's nothing wrong with teaching those things, but, it, but I'm, I'm, the picture I'm trying to paint for you is one where there's just really not a lot of predictability uh, anymore in terms of what kids learn, what kids read, you know, the, 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 the literature, the ideas that they're exposed to in any given place, in any given school, even across the hall in the same school anywhere in this country. It's, it's a little bit chaotic. Um, and and, that, and, and the, the, the important point is it's, it's chaotic, not by accident. At this point, it's chaotic somewhat by design. I'm not saying that's right, but let me be clear on that. I'm not saying that's a good thing. There's a lot of problems with that. Um, but this is the, the larger point I'm trying to make here is a lot of us who argue about what kids should and should not be doing are grossly overestimating um, how much control we have from the outside in dictating that. Uh, I wanted to get to something that's kind of around this because you mentioned it in your book is like the title of your book, School Choice. Now, yeah. when I was growing up, you know, my parents moved to Canada when I was six. Between kindergarten and grade six, I went to eight different schools. A couple of times because we moved, but mainly is because my mom was like, I heard this school's a lot better, so I'm going to put you there. They're all public schools, and none of them were private, but she had that choice. Now, yeah, what I'm seeing that debate coming up now in the states, and you know, uh, some states are legislating that the money fall the student, and I mean, the things like that are starting, but. And then I, you know, read Thomas Sowell's book about charter schools and you read about charter schools in the same building as a public district school. Sure. Where the charter school is doing much better with the same population base. Like, why, why do they think school choice is a bad thing? I mean, you know, my mom had that choice. She sent me to a bunch of different schools. And like I said, a couple of times it was because we moved, but she did what she thought was best for her kids. Now, yeah. If you're a family with two or three kids and one of them is doing really good in a public district school, leave them in there. But one of them, let's just say, would do better in a charter school. I mean, shouldn't, why is there such opposition for the parents having the choice of where to send their kids? Yeah, it's a great question. And it, it, it's interesting, you know, I, I, it was news to me until fairly recently <clears throat> um, the degree to which the United States is somewhat of the outlier here. 
In other words, um, other countries, and I learned this from a woman named Ashley Berner at Johns Hopkins, who wrote a fantastic book a few years ago. I think the title was No One Way to School. Other countries are far more pluralistic in, in their approach to public education. In other words, it's a lot more common um, in, in the Netherlands, in the UK, in Canada, uh, for schools to be uh, publicly funded, but, or government funded, but not government run. The way we do it in the US is the vast majority of students attend schools that are both government funded and government run. That's the default setting. And, and by habit, uh, any exception to that needs to, seems to need to justify itself uh, you know, against that, that model. Um, so, you know, and look, I'm an unabashed choice guy. And one of the reasons I've become an unabashed choice guy is for all of these reasons we're discussing. It just seems burdensome uh, to expect any single school to be all things to all kids uh, or all families. So let's, let's not start, well, let's not try. Let's, let, let's, let's have a little bit more choice. Uh, I think that's that's an you know potentially elegant solution to a lot of our a lot of our dilemmas, um, but you know what choice looks like <clears throat> in the United States, uh, you've had a, a charter school movement that is about you know 25, 30 years old, and what those are they're still quote public schools insofar as they are publicly financed, but they are privately run, um, but they tend to be uh, in fact I'm quite sure they are non sectarian you know not 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 uh, religious schools. <clears throat> um, what you, what you don't have as much, uh, although we're starting to see more, is, is you know, real choice, vouchers, so to speak, where you know, the public dollars will follow the kid and give the parents some latitude about um, you know, the, 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 the school culture, the school type, the school flavor, so to speak. So this is, again, much more common in other countries where you know, the, the theory is uh, as, lo uh, as long as you're following the national curriculum, and that's a Thing, interesting thing, because we don't have one of those in the US. Uh, but in many other countries, as long as you're following the national curriculum, they're not concerned about whether it's a quote, public school, private school, religious school, et cetera, um, as long as you're following the national curriculum. It's an interesting model, but frankly, one will never get here in the US entirely uh, because by, you know, the, the constitution forbids anything like a national curriculum. Uh, schools in the US are, are, are under state control um, you know, the U.S. Department of Education is not a national school board, so to speak. So it has no control over what gets taught in, 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 in the, the various states. So, you know, school choice, and I'm, again, an unabashed school choice guy, it's very much on the march right now in the U.S. You're seeing things like education scholarship accounts and, and um, you know, other mechanisms to help parents get out of bad situations in public schools and use public dollars to pay for private school placements. Uh, but it's still far, far less common than it is in many, maybe even most other countries. With respect to what you'd said about curriculums and how much you know, freedom the <clears throat> teachers do have, but I'm gonna give two examples. Like one was in Texas and I believe 16 other Southern states. Um, again, this is going from memory, but I know Texas for sure. And I think Tennessee as well, for sure. Up until about two years ago, they were, downplaying slavery and Jim Crow and they weren't, you know, you, you wouldn't get a full picture of what was going on. Now, if you're having like, you know, 1619 project curriculum where they're mm -hmm. overplaying it. Now, like, do you see some of this stuff that's coming out now that's overplaying like things like the 1619 as an overcorrection of what was going on before, or is it, it is it just two competing, uh, competing sides 
that are gaining Hard, power. I'm going to bang on my unknown and unknowable drum. The 1619 Project is a really interesting test case. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me, I better clear my throat. Um, so, you know, I, 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 we, we needn't belabor the, the, the controversies mm -hmm. over the 1619 Project. I'm guessing that everybody has heard about it and is, is well aware that it is a, you know, a controversial attempt to reimagine the founding of the United States of America from 1776 to 1619 when the first enslaved Africans were, were, were brought to, to the continent. Um, historians have a lot of issues with it. So the New York Times, um, well, you know, they want a Pulitzer for, for, for this. And, and there is a curriculum associated with it. It's produced by an outfit called the Pulitzer Center. So now if you look at the website of the Pulitzer Center, they will say from memory, uh, that something like 5,000 schools are now, quote, teaching the 1619 Project. And, and that sounds alarming to those of us who are concerned about the, the content of kids' education and worry about you know, whether they're getting you know, uh, you know, uh, this, this historically questionable view of, of, of events. Well, there are exactly, as far as I can tell, having looked recently, three school systems in America that have expressly authorized this. And I believe they are Chicago, um, Buffalo, and I can't remember the third one, maybe Washington, uh, Baltimore, Washington, D.C. Um, well, there's, so there's a big variance there. Three districts have said, yes, we teach this, but the Pulitzer Center is claiming 5,000 uh, schools. So what's, what's the deal here? Well, the deal is almost certainly what I alluded to earlier, that teachers are encouraged to find material at any given day to, to uh, engage students uh, that is relevant to them, et cetera. So the, almost certainly those 5,000 schools are, are not, I don't think they're lying, um, but the teachers in those schools and others are just probably sampling this stuff, downloading it. Uh, but well, here's what you don't know. Okay, if you're assigning a Nicole Hannah-Jones essay from the 1619 Project, are you also assigning a companion reading that offers a different point of view, unknown and unknowable? Um, I, I happen to not be a big fan of the idea of, quote, banning critical race theory or banning things like the 1619 Project that feels anti-intellectual to me. But the concern that, that people have is this issue of balance, this issue of accuracy. Um, so it's just, if, believe me, if I had a way of, uh, or an idea to tell you how we could best monitor this and know um, the, the, the quality of education and the, the, the different inputs that kids are getting, I'd tell you. Uh, I, I don't, I think it's a structural impossibility right now. So it leads to a lot of gnashing of teeth about women. What are my kids learning? Are they being indoctrinated? Uh, or is it the stuff that you cited before from Texas that they're learning that slavery was no big deal, et cetera. Um, it's just damn hard to know exactly at any given moment uh, what kids are or are not learning, what ideas they're being exposed to that may be inaccurate, wrongheaded, or simply um, you know, unacceptable. Something you said there about banning CRT and things like that. Now, <clears throat> the way I look at it is this, okay, you know, John McWhorter has written a lot about it. James Lindsay had done a few things. I recently did a thing comparing this stuff to Islam, like the, the social justice stuff, comparing it to parts of Islam and how it works like that. So there is a religious aspect to it. So I don't want to see curriculum based on it, just like I wouldn't want to see curriculum based on, you know, Christianity or Islam or Judaism or Scientology or anything like that. But yeah, I, I think that if you are teaching a history course and you bring up the 1619 project as an, you know, this was someone's take on it. This was, 
you know, they put it out and you can, you can discuss the controversy around it, just like in a, you know, college course or maybe a senior, senior, seniors in high school, when they're learning what the Holocaust can learn about the protocols of elders of Zion, which is complete conspiracy theory. And, you know, they can talk about those things. And I, yeah, I don't think, yeah. Okay. Like I said, I'm just putting things out. Like, I, but I don't think that basing the curriculum on it is correct. We're basing the texts on it, but having it taught in the classroom as this is something that it was, I don't think that should be a problem. I, I think like, yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think most thinking people would agree with that. You know, in mm -hmm. other words, it, it does feel quite anti-intellectual mm -hmm. to say there are certain ideas that are so, you know, volatile that they are, they are third rails and cannot be touched. You know, like the, the, the Voldemort approach, you know, he mm -hmm. who must not be named. I, I just don't think intelligent people conduct themselves that way and, and want to insulate kids uh, from unpleasant ideas. But there's acres of daylight, obviously, um, between teaching something and preaching something. And that's, that's the rub. In other words, you know, I, I, find me a parent, um, I'm sure they exist, but I think they're rare, uh, who would say, no, I, I, I don't want you, the, the, the words, quote, critical race theory ever to leave a teacher's mouth in a, in a public school. That's not, that's not okay. Um, most people would say, well, you know, it, it, this is, you know, j just like other, you know, ideologies, it's important to be well-educated and, and, and have multiple lenses through which to view and discuss history. That's what educated people do. Um, but when it crosses the line from, you know, a theory, a lens and a theology, so to speak, where this is the received wisdom and this is, this is the way that we view uh, uh, events and so will you too, then it's obviously a problem. Um, okay. Again, like I said, I've been looking at some of this and I've kind of, and I've been kind of looking at this since about 2014, just trying to figure out, I mean, this, this all came about because I tried to figure out why I was being called a white supremacist for criticizing oh. Islam. And right. I was like, okay, right. where's that coming from? Um, and then like I said, I started looking into a lot of this. Now, this is my theory. It might be tinfoil hat. It might be whatever, but <laughs> the, way I, I mean. the way I look at it is like, if, if you look at some of the stuff that um, Jonathan Haidt has done and with, yeah. and especially with Greg Lukianoff, and they're talking about like the mid eighties when the scare came up about kids being abducted and this danger, stranger danger and whatever. And then you mm -hmm. had, you know, more control on how parents could let their kids away and you scared parents. Um, but I'm looking at some of the stuff that Lenore Skenazi is doing recently with free range kids. Yep. She's a friend. And I'm looking at that. And I'm like, okay, so from the mid eighties till about now, where it's gotten to the point, you can't let your kids go to the park. You've curtailed parents time. Like parents have to be with their kids all the time. Like when I was growing up, you know, on the weekends, we were gone from <laughs> breakfast oh, until dinner time. Right. Like, you know, like this is in the seventies and the eighties. I know I had parents. I just don't, they didn't yeah. loom large in my day-to-day -day life. But okay. But that gave parents a time to, you know, be together, talk about things. They yeah. weren't con constantly looking at the kids. And then again, like this stuff comes through and parents aren't really paying attention to what's being taught to their kids because they don't have the time. So now like this last year with Zoom classes and stuff, uh, when parents did, were able to sit in a little bit and hear what's going on. Yeah. So like my whole thing on this was it's more of a problem of time. And it's, I'm not saying that this was some grand conspiracy or anything like that, but it just, it just so happened that, Parents' times got whittled away, and the colleges of education slightly changed their focus. And so those two things kind of converged around 2010, and it just started getting worse. So it's like that's where my thinking on this, like it's, it's not just a simple problem of fixing the schools. There's a lot of other things that need to go on as well. 
There's a lot of moving parts with, without question. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I might quibble with the time frame uh, somewhat. I mean, there has been a strain of thought common to schools of education going back 100 years uh, that, that it is the job and obligation of teachers and schools to be, you know, quote, agents of change um, and, and to, uh, you know, consciously seek to remake you know, society along lines congenial to social justice activists. That's really not new. Um, it has taken on sort of a more of a, a aggressive tinge uh, post George Floyd, and you know, with with um, you know the, the the current vogue for for anti racism and critical race theory. But critical race theory is not new. I mean, that's been around for since the seventies. Um, you know, by name. So, you know, it, it, there's, there's not a lot here that is not, that is necessarily, you know, uh, new and different, um, but it kind of, you know, it, it ebbs and flows. It goes from an acute to a chronic condition, so to speak, and never quite goes away. You know, uh, I, I don't mean this to sound dismissive, but, but American education particularly is awfully fad driven. Um, you know, you, you hear about things with great intensity for 18 months and then they just disappear. So at the moment, I'm not suggesting that that critical race theory and anti-racism is quote a fad, but it is it is it is taken on. There's there's an evangelical zeal attached to it because of things that are going on in 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 the broader world, um, and and there's some genuine controversy. I mean, this was this was what I wrote about in that piece that I think you know occasion you to invite to this 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 podcast. I'm teaching. Uh, black and brown kids exclusively for for twenty years. I've never you know stood in front of a white student in my life, um, and and as a result uh, of that work, uh, I, I've been kind of brought up with a certain set of expectations about what is best practice uh, for reaching and teaching those students. In other words, in my you know the, 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 my my flavor of educational equity is I guess somewhat traditional. It's you know although still controversial, it was quite quite common in the early days of the charter school movement. It was about high expectations, both for academics and behavior. It was about safe schools. Uh, it was about rich curriculum. Um, you know, uh, it was about you know, um, creating the expectation that every kid could and perhaps should go to college. Um, you know, in other words, creating the conditions in schools like the one where I used to teach that are more likely to be found in well-off um, suburban schools, for example, you know, closing that achievement gap, that expectation gap. Well, you know, some of those ideas I feel are, are, are under direct attack um, through the tenets of, of, of anti-racism. And as, as we speak at my elbow, I've got a copy of, of Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. And, you know, this, this, this has become kind of a bit of a Bible um, for, for, for good reasons, right? I mean, you know, who, is, who, who isn't anti-racist? Nobody's in favor of racism. But that's not necessarily the project that Kendi has in mind. So his work is an assault on things like the achievement gap. He will write, has written, that to even talk about an achievement gap is to engage in racially hierarchical thinking and therefore racist. Well, you know, the work that I and others have done for 20 years is directly aimed at, at, at eliminating that uh, that achievement gap. An awful lot of political oxygen and moral authority um, in school choice and charter schools in just general education has been aimed at closing that achievement gap um, because of the shame that we, we feel over um, the, the, the disparate in, uh, outcomes for, for, for black and white students. So it is, it's a bit of a stunner, frankly, to, to spend 20 years in this work and then read Kendi and find out, oh no, that's, that's, you're racist to even think about that. Well, is that true? Can we examine that? Or is, is this now a third rail that we cannot, cannot discuss? 
I, I can give you other examples, but I think you take the larger point, which is that there is a, um, a philosophical movement right now that is making a very different set of assumptions about uh, what is in the best interest of black and brown students uh, that is heavily informed by critical race theory, by, by, by thinkers like Ibram X. Kendi. And, and it may or may not be in the best interest of, of those students. In my, in my personal and professional opinion, I, I think it's, it's not. And, I'm, you know, I, and, and the piece that I wrote says so um, and says, here's why. It's because of you know, the, the, these various factors. Um, I, I'm not, I, I want to be clear. Um, I'm, I'm not suggesting that I'm in sole possession of the truth here. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I think we have danced around these issues obliquely for far too long, and we need to address them head on. Just on that, so, I mean, there's a school in the UK, uh, Michaela School, um, and oh, I spoke with yes. the, the headmistress there. Oh, she's and, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, Catherine's great. I mean, yeah. now, when the results started coming out, she was getting attacked. It almost looked like she was getting attacked for succeeding. And that's it, right. And again, when you read this stuff in Soul's book, and I don't want to say that's definitive because, I mean, you know, he only concentrated on a few schools, but yep. you have a school that has the same population base, two schools in the same building that have, you know, that are using the same population base and one is doing exceedingly well and the other one's doing awfully. You know, it should, if you're an educator or if you're in the school boards or if you're the you know, department of education, or whatever, you should look at why those two schools, I mean, that, that's a perfect test case there. You have a control group and you have a, yep. an experimental group. And yep. so why don't they want to look at that? Like, okay. You know, I'm well, brown. I mean, this is what it's worth. Sorry to interrupt. I mm -hmm. mean, this is this is the, the 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 theme of my own book, which you cited before, called "How the Other Half Learns" about Success Academy, which is you could think of it as the American equivalent of of um, Catherine Bribblesing's mm -hmm. Michaela School. Um, very similar. I mean, I've never been to Michaela, but but from what I understand, they are you know. It, it, Eva Moskowitz, who who founded Success, and Catherine are, are they're they're, they're like-minded. I think they're, they're they're kindred spirits in in many ways and in, in in their approach. Um, and look, I'm you know I'm I'm a fan or I'm you know deeply respectful of what um, uh, Eva Moskowitz and Success Academy have accomplished. But I, I but but the, the 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 point of my book, the news, so to speak, was that it's really not an apples to apples comparison uh, for very complicated reasons, which I won't bore you with. It's it's not as if they just you know they they that um, I mean because this is the myth that we've told ourselves for years that the only difference is the door that the kid walks into they walk into my old school they get a bad outcome they walk into Success Academy they get a good outcome you know if you if you look into the details of who applies you know there, there's a bit of a winnowing process there's a self selection that that kind of separates the parents of one they're they're different in terms of their attitude their motivation none of this. I want to be really clear about this. None of this suggests or should be taken to suggest that there's, quote, cheating going on, that somebody's got their thumb on the scale. It just makes the comparisons inept. My point is that's okay. <clears throat> when did we ever decide in this country that it was a bad thing to be motivated, to be ambitious, to seek out the best opportunities you could for, for kids? I mean, broadly speaking, the theme of my book is to say, look, if you are white and affluent in this in this country, you already have something approaching perfect school choice. You either have the resources um, to, to pay for private school tuition or perhaps to move to the suburbs if, if your neighborhood school is terrible. And that's unremarkable. But if, if, if you are black or brown and poor and an Eva Moskowitz comes along and creates a similar opportunity for you, suddenly we think that's unfair because there are some kids who are not able to take advantage of this. Well, there's, you know, that, that, that probably is true. Um, but on the other hand, 
that's an odd way to keep score or it's, there's, it's an odd way to apply different standards to different groups. It's, it's unremarkable and uncontroversial when I pull my daughter uh, out of her public school and send her to a private school. But when Eva Moskowitz or Catherine create an opportunity for, for those who normally do not have those kinds of choices, well, then it's a crisis. And that's, we, we need to examine our assumptions about that. I just wanted to, like, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer because I know you've got things to do, unlike me. Um, but I wanted to ask you about one thing because this is like a debate I've been looking at recently and I've heard about it. Um, and I guess this is, a, again, something that's been around for a while. Uh, like, so let's just take it with reading. So mm-hmm. it's either teach to read or read to, like, okay, you know, learn to read or read to learn type of thing. Now, I get that. And I understand that you know, while you're taking a history class, you're reading in that history class. And now if you're reading something that's interesting, that's teaching you the history, it's a lot better than a dry textbook, but that can also learn, help you learn to read and help you learn to make arguments. I just don't like some, some people I hear saying it should be started right away. And I'm thinking, okay, well, until the kid learns the alphabet, can't really read to learn type of thing, right? Like it's, you have to have the basics. Like, so where do you fall on that debate? Like, where do you think that comes in or, and how yeah, soon do you think you should start that? This is, um, you've unwittingly stumbled on the issue that uh, took me from being a two year mid-career public service stint, go back to my field mm-hmm. teacher and 20 years second career educator. Um, because in my school in the South Bronx, um, it was, uh, you know, I, I became, I started with kind of a willing suspension of disbelief about the way we were teaching reading. Then that turned into sort of a curiosity about it. And then frankly, a militance about it. Um, you know, I, I am a um, unapologetic disciple of a fellow named E.D. Hirsch Jr., who uh, some may re- recall as the author of a book from 40 years ago called Cultural Literacy. And he's the founder um, and still chairman of the board in his 90s of, of the, uh, the Core Knowledge Foundation, uh, which, which, which stresses a certain um, uh, flavor of education, which is kind of my flavor of education. In other words, so I mean, I, I'll, I'll try to summarize this quickly, but Hirsch's insight was that uh, in order to read with comprehension, kids need um, you know, a, a, a wealth of background knowledge. And at a molecular level, so to speak, writers, and speakers make assumptions about what their audiences, their, their listeners and readers know. So if you think of you know, language as being like an iceberg, there's the 26 letters of the alphabet and the words above the waterline, then there's this massive amount of assumed knowledge, idioms, allusions, et cetera, uh, that kind of inform that, that um, your, your literacy. So every teacher, I would argue, like me, who has you know, stood in front of, of a struggling group of, of low-income kids in a place like the South Bronx, has had the phenomenon of a kid who could read, uh, and I'm, you know, again making air quotes around the word read. They could, they could, they could say the words, they could decode them, uh, but then they would say the thing we've all heard. Well, I read it, but I didn't get it. Well, Hirsch's theories offer almost a, a, a alone among major educational theory, theorists a reason for that. It has nothing to do. Uh, with, with you know, any of the fashionable notions we have about student engagement and culturally relevant pedagogy, it has to do with background knowledge. Um, if, if, if the readers and writers are not on the same page, you're going to have that, I, I read it but didn't get it phenomenon. So his, his vision of reading is mine at, at the end of the day. 
Um, and, and sorry, at the risk of going way far afield from your very important question, we're having a moment in this country where at long last, I feel like the, the, the tide is somewhat turning and, and those who advocate what has become known as the science of reading are having their day. Uh, now that includes not just uh, things like background knowledge in, in the Hersheyan view, but it does th include things like, like a, a strict approach to you know, phonics, which is more complicated than that. It's phonemic awareness, it's fluency, et cetera. Um, but I feel like we are finally um, you know, getting some momentum around the idea that, look, there is a right way to teach reading. We've known it for a long time and damn it, we're gonna do it that way. I mean, you're starting to see legislative action in 20 odd states uh, to more or less demand um, this so-called science of reading approach. Uh, ed schools are getting more serious about teaching it. I, I think this is, this is not a, a magic bullet. It's not gonna change overnight, but it's, it's um, if you told me 20 years ago that we'd be seeing the kind of interest and momentum for scientifically sound reading practices that we're seeing now, I would not have believed it. Um, so, you know, again, it's not, it's not over. It's, a, it's an ongoing struggle, perhaps always will be, but there's, there's reasons to be encouraged. Yeah, okay, thanks. Like, like I said, I was just, you know, because I had one of my friends saying, okay, you, you should start this right away. And I'm like, well, until the kid can actually learn the alphabet and, yeah. you know, learn some stuff, so I was thinking, you know, if you start around the third grade, like I, again, you know, just some schmuck on oh, Twitter. Third, third grade is too late. I mean, let's, if we late. know nothing else, we know, we know that. Uh, if you, if you see a kid who is not reading at grade level by third grade, uh, I don't know the data, but it's something like 90% of kids who are reading below grade level in, at, at third grade, they will never read at grade level. This is why you've seen in any number of states, these so-called third grade reading laws or challenges that, that require kids to be held back um, if they are not reading proficiently by third grade. Now, those are problematic too. I mean, I, I agree with that impulse, but it's not just about, you know, you can't just do more of what's not working and expect that it's gonna change results. Um, you know, if, if, if you've got schools where a lot of kids aren't reading by third grade, well, that's a problem. And you need to be curious about why it keeps happening, not just say, hold them back. Um, so, you know, all of these, these issues tend to, tend to be complicated, but I mean, the, the, the point of the anecdote I told a moment ago is, uh, and I'm not, I'm, again, I'm not, don't get the idea that I'm, I'm antiphonic, so to speak, I'm, I'm quite the opposite, but it's not that hard. It's relatively easy, comparatively easy, I guess I should say, to get kids who can quote decode, know their letters, be able to sound out words. The real challenge is, is a mature sense of reading comprehension. And that's, that's a slow growing plant and it requires, um, you know, if, you're, if you accept the E.D. Hirsch model, which I do, it requires a lot of art and science and history and, and literature. You know, it, it can't just be, you know, follow your bliss and learn about whatever you want. That's like going to the gym and just working out your arms because you enjoy doing arms and you never do leg day. Um, or pick, you know, pick your own analogy. Uh, at the end of the day, there are no shortcuts. Um, uh, you, you have kids of any race or background uh, need a rich, uh, cognitively demanding curriculum. Um, if they don't get that and we don't stick to it year after year, rigorously um, and programmatically, there's, there's no reason to expect we're going to see anything other than what we've seen for the last 50 years, which is this kind of just dull hum of mediocrity. Okay, well, I think that's a good place to end. Thanks a lot. I mean, if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, if you've got any last words on school choice or anything like that, please go ahead. Yeah, well, no, I appreciate the opportunity to 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 talk to you about these issues. As you can tell, I you know, twenty years in, I still get kind of animated talking about them. 
Um, I'm not hard to find uh, in this day and age of social media. It's Robert Pondicio. So it's R Pondicio at, um, at, at, at Twitter, um, also on Facebook. Um, and I, I, most of the stuff that I write tends to show up at the website of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, uh, which is a Washington-based think tank. Hey, well, again, thanks a lot for coming on. It was great. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. And thanks everyone for listening.